You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, it'll be up here on the screen. So here's, here's where we are. Now, this is happening in Acts chapter 3. Uh, Apostles Peter and John are headed to a prayer gathering at the place of worship, and when they see this paralyzed man begging for money just outside of the gate. And it's important to see that when you learn this story, they healed this man. It's important to remember that they didn't do the least that they could do. They didn't give him money or food because in this case they could actually give him much more, even if it was going to cause them some trouble. So they did the most they could do because after being with Jesus all this time, they knew that the most they could do was actually the least they could do. Because Peter and and John, they they didn't take their discipleship half-heartedly. They didn't give God leftovers. They didn't give other people leftovers. They knew the disciples of Jesus do not live off of leftovers. God is generous, and everything Jesus did is proof. Disciples share in God's life, and their plates can always be filled with God's provision. So Peter and John come together. They dedicate their lives to experiencing the presence of Jesus, and they did. They weren't mistake-free. They weren't sin-free. There were times when the frailty of their humanity caused them to fail as their faith grew fickle, but Jesus' presence was their power. Say, Jesus' presence was their power. And so Jesus promised that he'd never leave them, and they knew it. And they could believe then that they could trust God's generosity. They could believe then that they could trust in God's provision. They believed that they could even trust in the possibilities of miracles. So Jesus' presence was their power. And they believed that even when they stood for trial, stood for trial for the gospel, that they needed wisdom, courage, and boldness, and that they would have it. Christ was their confidence, and Christ would never leave them. Christ was their comfort, and Christ's presence was their power. And so here's the text. The teaching and preaching of Peter and John angered the priests, the captain of the temple police, and representatives of the Jewish sect of the Sadducees, which is, a religi- which is a political and religious party. And they were furious that the people were being taught that in Jesus there's a resurrection from the dead. So while Peter and John were still speaking, the Jewish authorities, which is to say the religious and political leaders, including obviously here uh, the temple police, came to the temple courts to oppose them. They had them arrested. And since it was already evening, they kept them in custody until the next day. Yet there were many in the crowd who believed the message, bringing the total number of men and women who believed nearly 5,000. So the next day, verse 5, many Jewish leaders, religious scholars, and elders of the people convened a meeting in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there uh, with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others who were members of the high priest family. Let me pause. You don't know those names. You may know them somewhat through the Bible. But it's important to remember when the Bible names people, it's because these people are real. Like this is, this is true. So when the readers are reading this, they're like, oh, yeah, Alexander. They brought them before this council. They made them stand in front of the council, and they said, tell us by what authority and power have you done these things. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered, respected elders and leaders of the people, listen. Are we being put on trial today for doing an act of kindness? 
by healing a frail, crippled man? Well, then you and everyone else in Israel should know that it is by the power of the name of Jesus that the crippled man stands here today, completely healed. You crucified, listen to this, you crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Is he softening that up at all? Like, you're already in trial, bro. Right? You crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but God raised him from the dead. This Jesus is the stone, I quote scripture, which is something to know. This Jesus is the stone that you, the builders, have rejected and now has become the cornerstone. There is no one else who has the power to save us, for there is only one name to whom God has given authority by which we must experience salvation, the name of Jesus. The council members were astonished as they witnessed the bold courage. Everybody say bold courage. The bold courage of Peter and John. Now check this. Especially when they discovered that they were men, that they were just ordinary men who never had religious training. They're just everyday people. Then they began to understand the effect Jesus had on them by simply spending time with him. Come on now. Then they understood the effect that Jesus had on them, these ordinary, untrained men, just by spending time with Jesus. Hmm. Verse 14, standing there with them was the healed man, and there was nothing further they could say. (laughs) They had the receipts. Verse 15, so they ordered them to leave the room while they discussed the matter among themselves and said, what do we do with these men? Everyone in Jerusalem can clearly see that they performed a notable sign and wonder. We can't deny that. Verse 17, listen. But to keep this propaganda from spreading any further among the people, let's threaten them severely and warn them to never speak this name again. Come on now. That's how power has always worked. Can't deny what they see. Can't deny the movement. So we'll just go ahead and call it propaganda. We'll call it fake. And then we'll threaten them in the hopes to shut them up. Verse 18, so they had them brought back and before the council and they commanded them to never teach this people or speak again using the name of Jesus. They wagged their finger, threatened severity, already had him in prison, threatened punishment. Peter and John said, "Mm, you can judge for yourselves. Is it better to listen to you or to God? It's impossible for us, everybody say impossible, impossible for us to stop speaking about all the things we've seen and heard. Since the members of the council couldn't come up with a crime, they could punish them for. They threatened them once more and let them go. All the people praised God, thrilled over the miraculous healing of the crippled man, and the man who received this miracle sign of healing was over 40 years old. So we heard the story, right? Peter and John get arrested by the temple police, brought before a Jewish court of law to answer for what they're doing and saying. Peter makes clear in his response that Jesus is the reason for every season, even if it leads to accusations of treason. Even in the midst of uncertainty, they can live a full and fearless life because Jesus' presence was their power. Everybody say, Jesus' presence was their power. So now, the religious and political leaders, these are men who have possession of the power to imprison them and eventually do, as we know, tell them to stop speaking. And Peter and John says, you can judge for yourselves. Listen to you or listen to God. We can't stop speaking about all that we have seen 
and heard. And so the question I have is what could provoke such a boldness? What could provoke such a courage? And I would say this, they knew God's forgiveness. They knew God's embrace. They knew that to open themselves up to such courage and boldness would not mean trusting more in themselves, but more in God's embrace of them. Despite their frailty, failure, and fickleness, they were committed to repentance. Everybody say repentance. As a way of life, and Christ's presence became their power. Oscar Romero, a man of which I wished I was named after, but I do share the name Oscar. Yeah, I just gave y'all something. I mean, look, I'm wearing the same shirt as six other men in this place. At this point, everything's on the table. All right. Oscar Romero was assassinated in 1980 while presiding over the Eucharist at a church-run hospital specializing in caring for the terminally ill. <clears throat> He's one of my theological heroes. He served as the Archbishop of San Salvador, El Salvador, and was despised from many sides for standing with the oppressed poor. Now, like Peter and John, he knew the presence of Jesus was his power. He trusted that even in hard uncertain moments of life that courage and boldness was always available to God's children who took Jesus seriously. If only we'd be willing to take risks to have to actually have courage and boldness. So he also knew that this commitment would cost him dearly and cause trouble. He knew that if the church was to recapture its witness, it would, like Peter and John, find itself provoking what would be considered a crisis to society's commitments to status quo, just like Peter and John did. And so he said this in one of his sermons, one of his radio addresses, a church that does not provoke any crisis, preach a gospel that does not unsettle, Proclaim a word of God that does not get under anyone's skin or a word of God that does not touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? Very nice, pious considerations that don't bother anyone. That's the way many would like preaching to be. Am I right, church? Those preachers who avoid every thorny matter so as not to be harassed, so as not to have conflicts and difficulties, do not light up the world they live in. They don't have Peter's courage, who told the crowd where their blood-stained hands still were that had killed Christ. You killed him, even though the charge could cost him his life as well, he made it. The gospel is courageous. Everybody say the gospel is courageous. It's good news of him who came to take away the world's sins. He said that in 1978, two years before he was murdered. But you can imagine this didn't win him the applause from many even inside the church, much less those in political power. So death threats came down like rain. But Romero had a word for them later on in 1978. Listen to what he said. And so, brothers and sisters, 
I repeat again what I have said here so often, addressing by radio those who perhaps have caused so many injustices and acts of violence, those who have brought tears to so many homes, those who have stained themselves with the blood of so many murders, those who have hands soiled with tortures, those who have calloused their consciousness, who are unmoved to see under their boots a person abased, suffering, perhaps ready to die. To all of them, I say, no matter your crimes, they are ugly and horrible, and you have abased the highest dignity of a human person, but God calls you and forgives you. And here perhaps arises the aversion of those who feel they are laborers from the first hour. How can I be in heaven with those criminals? Brothers and sisters, in heaven, there are no criminals. The greatest criminal, once he has repented of his sins, is now a child of God. You want to know what persuaded Romero to tell the truth in such a way that it made his churches mad sometimes and people in political power mad? Why he had to name things by name? Notice he didn't just say, all you bad people. You want to know why he felt the way he did? Because he believed in a God who is, who is reaching for everyone and no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But he also realized that people aren't going to fall upon the grace of God if they're holding on to their own sins. Here, people aren't going to fall upon the mercies of God if they are continuing to cause injustices to a broken society, especially if they're doing it in the name of Jesus. What enabled Romero to believe that Jesus' presence was his power, where he was unable to stop speaking about all the things he had seen and heard, was this commitment to love as Christ loves by the Spirit of God and his willingness to give himself to love. Only a humble life of repentance is able to do that. I'm going to say it again. Only a humble life of repentance is able to do that. I'll say it one more time. Only a humble life of repentance is able to do that. Because only a humble life of repentance knows what God can do. Only a humble life of repentance knows how God can tear the shackles of the reign of sin and death from our hands and our feet. Only a humble life of repentance will realize that he or she is continuing to play the narrative, continuing to play the part of the oppressor. Only a humble life of repentance will seek the good of others and give of his or herself in the Christ shaped love that led Christ to the cross. What could provoke such a courage and boldness? He knew forgiveness. He knew God's embrace. He knew that to open himself up to such courage and boldness would not mean trusting more in himself, but more in God's embrace of him. Despite the frailty, failure, and fickleness of himself, his nation, his enemies, or even the church, he was committed to repentance as a way of life, and Christ's presence became his power. You want to know why Christ's presence doesn't become our power? It's because we're trusting more in ourselves. We're trusting more in our ability to get things done. We're trusting in others to get things done. We're trusting in a nation. We're trusting in someone else, our jobs. We're trusting in something else to get it done. Oh, Poor guy. 
Richard Allen was born February 14th, 1760 in Philadelphia. He came of age during the American Revolution. He grew up enslaved to Benjamin Chew, a lawyer in Philadelphia, and as a child he was sold to Stokely Sturges, a plantation owner in Delaware, where Allen taught himself to read and write. Allen's enslaver, Stokely Sturges, was involved in the Methodist church, and unlike southern enslavers, Sturges permitted his slaves to attend church services. One Sunday in, 19, in 1777, during a sermon preached by Freeborn Garretson, a, a white preacher and an abolitionist, Allen's enslaver, Stokely Sturges, heard the preacher say that slave owners had been, and I quote, weighed in the balance and found wanting. Garretson, a son of a wealthy plantation owner in Maryland, inherited several slaves along the plantation, but heard the Lord tell him, this, this is the gospel preacher abolitionist, he heard the Lord tell him to let the oppressed go free. And so Garretson freed the enslaved immediately and gave his life to preaching abolition. Eventually, spending periods in jail throughout the north, he preached. Now, on this particular occasion, Garretson's words convicted, convicted Sturgis to no longer enslave black lives. It was then that the 17-year-old Richard Allen converted as a Methodist preacher, in, or a Methodist Christian in 1777. But rather than setting the young Richard Allen free, the enslaver Sturges made him pay back what he had paid to enslave him. But like Peter and John, Richard Allen knew that the presence of Jesus was his power. And he trusted that even in the hard and uncertain moments of life, that courage and boldness was always available to God's children who took Jesus seriously, if only we're willing to risk it. So over a period of five years, Allen worked tirelessly, and in 1780, he bought his freedom at a cost of $2,000. Now, $2,000 in 1780 is the equivalency to $42,000 today. Remaining faithful to Jesus, Richard Allen continued to preach in various churches. Eventually, he received the invitation to become the preacher at St. George's Methodist Church. This was one of the only racially mixed congregations where even there, though black Christians were treated as second class, the, the seating was segregated and separated. And Richard Allen was only allowed to preach to the black attendees, which in time grew greatly in number. Well, Allen and the black church members tried to persuade the leadership of St. George's to let them start a different congregation, maybe to buy their own building so they could continue to flourish since they weren't given the same privileges in this racially mixed congregation. So one Sunday in 1792, Richard Allen and his dear friend and fellow black minister Absalom Jones entered into St. George's to worship this particular Sunday, the seating was different, and unknowing to them, they sat in a section reserved only for white Christians, and they violated the church's segregated seating arrangements. And while kneeling to pray, one of the congregational prayers, one of the white church leaders interrupted them and asked them to leave their seat. And Allen and Jones told the man they would leave, but only after the congregational prayer was over. And yet they were threatened with force. And as the prayer ended, Allen and Jones left the church, followed by every other black Christian. Allen writes this in his autobiography. He says, we all went out of the church in a body, and they were no more plagued with us in the church. 
Now, Allen and other black Christians did not completely cut off St. George's. They requested a meeting with one of the elders to try and talk about plans they had to just go ahead and pursue a congregation for black Christians. But the elder discouraged them from moving ahead with their own church and the purchase of new property, threatening church discipline. So in 1794, because Allen couldn't stop speaking about what he had seen and heard, he used his own money and plot of land he had previously purchased and helped start Bethel African Church in Philadelphia. And since so many black Methodist Christians from other Methodist congregations continued to experience racial discrimination from their fellow white members, Allen helped found what is now the African Methodist Episcopal Denomination in 1816 and became its first bishop. That's the AME Church. In the northern United States of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, Allen and many black Christians tried to remain in solidarity with white brothers and sisters but were not welcomed as equals due to the color of their skin. So in courage and hope, they went where they were wanted, which was with one another, and continued to worship together as God's beloved. And Allen ended up spending the rest of his life tending to an underground railroad station. He became a station tender along with his wife, Sarah Bass. And he worked with community leaders to open schools, white and black, for African Americans. His life work was established for both freed and enslaved African Americans so that they could, they could organize and learn and help one another. And these efforts set the wheels in motion for others to lead across the country. And when he passed away, March 26 of 1831, they buried him in the basement of the church he had first built on his property. He changed, he changed society. Oscar Romero changed society. Peter and John changed society because God came to society in the person of Jesus and invited society to a new way of seeing itself. So what could provoke such a courage and boldness in people like Peter and John or Oscar Romero or, or Friedman Gerritsen, the abolitionist preacher for Richard Island? What kept them pressing on among many things? And this is one of the things Allen said in his autobiography. What kept him pressing on among many things is that even though he had to judge behaviors, he resisted judging souls because God did not judge his in Christ. See, what provoked such a courage and boldness is that Alan knew forgiveness. He knew God's embrace. He knew that to open himself up to the courage and boldness would not mean trusting more in himself, but more in God's embrace of him. Despite the frailty, failure, and fickleness of himself, his nation, or even his white brothers and sisters, he was committed to repentance as a way of life, and Christ's presence became his power. Why do I say all this? Because if there is one thing the church needs, is it needs courage and boldness. But if the church is going to find courage and boldness, if you as a Christ follower are going to find courage and boldness, then you have to be with Jesus to find it. You're not going to find it inside you, reaching deeper in you. You're not going to find it in some sort of little mantra or some sort of cute meme that you're going to share on Facebook. You're not going to find it from anyone else other than your dependence upon the full measure of the abundant life that Christ has promised you. And what does that even mean? 
Well, it starts with understanding where, wherever you walk, there Christ always is. Because where you are, Christ is also. But what it also means is we're going to have to be willing to take a risk sometimes. We're going to have to really do the hard things sometimes. Whether it's me as a dad and my family, I'm going to have to be willing to do the hard things sometimes. I'm going to have to see things nobody sees and tend to it because I believe that Christ is king of even that thing. When it comes to me and my work, I'm going to have to believe that God can do the impossible. When it comes to my finances, when it comes to my relationships, and if I am not spending time with Christ, if I am not tending to the presence of Christ in my life, I'm going to be left in my own power. And when life hits me square between the eyes, whether it's as abrupt as Romero or as abrupt as Alan, or whether it's as abrupt as Peter and John, or whether it's as abrupt as Preacher Gerritsen, when life hits me square between the eyes with a choice, I will not have the courage and boldness to power through because I have not been with Jesus, except since past Sunday. And so what is needed is repentance, but not in the way we often talk. Repentance, in its best understanding, is nothing less or more than a turning to God. Everybody say turning to God. It's turning my attention to God who in Christ is with me by God's Spirit. Attention isn't about focus. It isn't about looking at nothing else. Because a lot of times we talk about like focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus. When nobody focuses on Jesus, like could you imagine Peter's walking with Jesus, somebody say, hey Peter, look. And Peter says, no, nah, I can't, I'm focused on Jesus. Like it's not that. It's about where my attention is. It's about where my affection is. It isn't about walking with your nose in the scripture or constantly opening your lips in prayer. It is instead a purposeful sense of awareness and recognition that Christ is with me. It's a steady belief that where I am, Christ is also. It is why I say it so often. And I will continue to say it so often. I imagine when the disciples were in Jesus' presence, they felt the sense of power. And they felt the courage and the boldness, and they had to to follow Jesus. So I'm not talking about focus. I'm talking about tension, but I'm not talking about any kind of attention that speaks to where our eyes are literally set. I'm talking about where our hearts and minds are set. Like a parent walking along the lake, taking the beauty of what they see while remaining attentive to the presence of their child. So too we walk with Christ. We need a deeper understanding of repentance. It's more than an act, even though it can be. But repentance is more like an ethic. It's a way of life. Because turning to God is a way of life. When I slow down and marvel at God's blessings, I turn to God. When I pray, I turn to God. When I sit before Scripture, I turn to God. When I praise or lament, I turn to God to God. When I serve my neighbor because of love for God and my neighbor, I turn to God. When I am committed to turning to God as a way of life, repentance becomes a way of life. I am easy to say, I'm sorry. I am easy to say, Lord, forgive me. I am easy to say, Lord, forgive the mothers and fathers. 
I am easy to say, I need you, God. I am willing to slow down and take in what is around me. I'm willing to pray, especially when I feel frail, when I fail or fickle in my faith. I am willing to sit before scriptures. I am willing to praise God when times are good or lament to God when times are not. I am willing to serve my neighbor because of the love of God and my neighbor. And in doing all of this, I embrace turning to God as a way of life. And when my attention is turned to God, I no longer become the source of my hope and strength, my joy and peace, my courage and boldness. Christ becomes all of that for me, when I'm turning to God, I can no longer place trust in my idols and my pride. I can no longer place my hope in other things that at the end of the day aren't going to last. When I'm turning to God, I am filled with the reality and the promise of the presence of God. And when I am present with God, God becomes my strength. And then I can say the hard things that I need to say. I can do the hard things that I need to do. I can point my son to Jesus even when I fail miserably. I share these stories with you today because they are some of the most poignant realities of history. That only when people turned to God did they find boldness and courage. Even when they stood in the face of trial, literally or figuratively speaking. Christ is the source of all that is holy and good. Do not neglect him, beloved. But even if you do, he refuses to neglect you. So repent. Turn back toward God and begin again. But I need you to remember something. We can only turn to God because God is always there. The courage and boldness to speak, to live, to love, to lose friends due to your stance on injustice, to gain new ones as God moves us into new places and spaces will be found because we are not turning to ourselves but to God who longs to enable us to become what God knows we can become and do what God believes we can do. The ability to do that is when we turn to God. Don't turn to yourselves if you want to find courage and boldness. All right, now let me say this to the dads in the room because I'm just figuring out this whole dad thing. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I just don't. I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to raising a kid. He's another human being that I'm in charge of, sort of. I don't know what I'm doing with loving Jay, another son. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing because I'm wearing the same shirt as six other guys in the room. Clearly, they don't know what they're doing either. But clearly, our wives do. Had to get the, right? But here's the reality that I'm learning, both as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, as a brother, as a friend. I actually don't have to know what I'm doing. I just need to know what Jesus is doing. You hear what I said? I don't have to know what I'm doing. I need to know what Jesus is doing. And I need to know what Jesus would do. There is no biblical manhood. There is Christ-like humanhood. We follow Jesus, and our children find Jesus. 
Because wherever we're found, there Jesus will be found too. And when we find Jesus, whatever courage and boldness we're going to need to say the hard things, to do the hard things, to model before our children the right things, we will have the power we need because we are living in the presence of Christ. And when we're not, when I'm not, when I'm blowing it, which is happening, I have you. I have you to remind me what it looks like to follow Jesus. I have these prayers to pray, these songs to sing, hands to shake and hugs to receive, words of encouragement to receive, words of rebuke maybe even to receive. But when I do not know, I have you to remind me that I actually do know because the only thing I have to know is not what I'm doing, but what Jesus is doing. And beloved, that's got to look like something. So if you're a dad and you're not in the scriptures, begin today. If you're a dad and you're not in the word, opening it up, sitting before it, memorizing the text, letting the text get inside of you, begin today. If you're a dad who goes to church only when it's convenient and you happen to be here today, do it next week. When you're, if you're a dad who watches things happen in the world and your kid has no idea what's happening and why it's happening, then dads get educated and teach them what's going on in the world and what Jesus has to say about that thing that's happening in the world. If you are a dad who has misplaced your allegiance in something other than Jesus, then repent and follow Jesus faithfully today. And when you can't find the strength to walk, the back to stand, and the mind to think and the heart to love, then humbly look across the way and find a man who's just trying to do it and do it together. Because this world is fraught with peril. And our children are exposed to things that we could never imagine, things that we were not exposed to. We are going to need Jesus and then we're going to need each other to remember that we need Jesus. This whole notion that men are too strong to cry, too strong to say we're sorry or that we need things, that's the lie of the devil. That is not the way of Jesus. The Christ who wept, the Christ who wept, the Christ who loved, we need each other. And in the end, what could be said is true of dads is 100% true of all of us anyway. We all need each other. Male, female, dad, mother, or not. We need each other. Because we are always wondering what to do. And in our wondering of what to do, we sometimes lose sight of what we know to do, and that is to follow Jesus. I tell my son all the time that the world doesn't need talented men. The world doesn't need tough men. I tell my son all the time the world needs thoughtful men who follow Jesus. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. 
We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.